All right, I'm about to date a, a pretty good sizable group of people in this room, okay? Um, anyone notice today that when someone's recording something on their phone, you might actually hear them say, yeah, we got it on tape. We taped it, but there's no physical tape present to tape it on. I, like many of you older ones in the room, still have things on actual tape, videotape. I have the little cassette tapes, too. I might actually have an 8-track somewhere. That's a different, different discussion. But recording things on tape changed so much for people. Do you remember that? Um, I mean, just go back in time when it first was introduced to all the way to when, you know, the home recording devices were, were you know, remember how much you had to pay for a, a, a home camcorder? It was crazy. And able to document the live action of what objectively took place. There's some videos I'm sure that my mom has that I hope never make it to the internet. You laugh because you have the same things in the room. In the 20th century, theologian uh, Francis Schaeffer referred to the invisible tape recorder. We all have around our necks, he said, as we stand before God. Before our all-knowing God, there is a perfect and objective record being kept. It is the invisible tape recorder of our actions, motives, and included in that are things that we say to others about others and about how they ought to live. Then at the last day, God the judge will take, take that tape recorder off our neck and say, I will be completely fair. I will simply play this tape, judge you on the basis of what your own words say are the standards for human behavior. When Schaefer wrote that, he was talking about, uh, he was speaking in light of what Paul was teaching in Romans chapter 2. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 2, where Paul says, Do you think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same that you will escape God's judgment? And when that question is posed, no one in history can realistically answer, Yes, I think I will. Page 998, if you're, looking, if you're looking to use the Bible that's provided for you there in the pew. And as you're looking there, let me just remind you of some context. The context is simply this. Everybody needs the Lord Jesus Christ. There's never, we should never walk around with a shirt that says, y'all need Jesus. It should say, we need Jesus. Everybody needs the gospel. And that's why Paul's written this letter, to advance the gospel. And so the whole world does, and now for clarity's sake, Paul drives home that even Jewish people need the righteousness of God through Christ. That's a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. And so let's look now at Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Do you think anyone, one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. 
but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For there is no favoritism with God. For all who sin without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Amen. Verse 16 is key to reading this section of scripture. The day when God judges what people have kept secret. This section of scripture reminds us of another type of sinner, and that is the self-righteous sinner entrenched not necessarily in in sexual immorality and wicked practices. No, they may actually be in worse shape. While the sinner in chapter 1, if you remember last week, drifts towards a reprobate mind, these sinners here do the same, but they do it in outward appearance. Excuse me, not in outward appearance, but they do it on the inside, and they have the same sin in their hearts. They are of the mindset that God is obligated to them to save them because they think they're better than others, forgetting their own inward sin. So look back at chapter 1 for context here. In describing humanity, verse 29 of chapter 1, they miss it. It's like this, this fastball went right by. Paul says mankind is, they are filled with unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. The place where sin begins is in the heart. And so now, these people he's writing to here, they need to contend with the fact that their own outward appearances, Jewishness, and pedigrees do not get them off the hook before the omniscient God. No one can escape God's impartial scrutiny at the judgment. Nobody. It's interesting, it's interesting how Paul writes here. He uses a backdoor approach. He gets them amening, chapter 1. He gets them amening his words. Amen, those people are wicked, Paul. Yes! And then he shifts it sharply to show them that they do the very same kinds of things. That they... And we are just as much under the impending wrath as the heathen Gentiles who likely came to their minds. When, when chapter 2 hits, it were, it would go, people were like, yeah, amen. What? Hang on. Are you talking to me? Yes. Verse 2 literally reads, you, O man, who? So he creates a, an imaginary opponent here. A self-righteous critic who thinks the judgment of the Gentiles is a result of his of his own indictment. And so this is like Nathan to King David in the Old Testament. You are the man who is scandalously and terribly guilty, David. 
but he's taking it to this person he's arguing with. This is called, this is a literary device called as a diatribe. He's writing to a person who needs to be argued against. So that's the style of how he's writing. He's got a, a character he wants to argue against that he knows wants to debate with him about these issues. And so the indefinite, every one of you, verse 1, means that the dialogue partner could be anyone who believes that they are morally superior to those involved in the decadence described in chapter 1. That's who he's talking to. And so Paul doesn't name his foe, he doesn't name this, this dude here until we get understanding closer to verse 17, which we'll see next week. But it's clear that this opponent stands for the Jewish people arguing against him. And so this section is meant to, uh, if you could think through putting some sticks of dynamite in a, maybe a, a beaver dam. Uh, maybe I've watched too much uh, of the Duck Dynasty guys do that, but that's the illustration that comes to my mind. Uh, if you can think of, of some dynamite getting put into a beaver dam, that, like, to bl- this section is meant to blow up the dam of self-righteousness and all deceived in that sin. And Paul's ready to light it and blow it to bits. It's not enough to condemn evil and possess the Mosaic law in order to receive eternal life on the final day. That's not going to do it. You've got to know what's going to cut it, and our works won't do it. These verses expose hard-hearted attitudes of self-righteousness. I mean, the church, I mean, on a, on a Sunday, we, uh, we don't have anybody we'd be tempted toward self-righteousness, do we? That doesn't reside in our hearts. Look again. Look again. God will not favor Jews or Gentiles on the day of judgment, but will treat them all the same, condemning the wicked among the Jews just as he condemned the wicked among the Gentiles. Here's the central point. If you're taking notes, it's there for you in your bulletin. It's right there in front of your bulletin. We need Jesus because, jo- because God judges according to works. We need Jesus because God judges according to works. And I have four points this morning. Number one. Number one to help us These are four points to help us understand this truth. First of all, number one, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Have you ever caught yourself amening during a sermon or on a social media post or a news report and thought, I sure hope so-and-so heard that? There we go. Some folks are at least being honest with me this morning. Yeah. We can simultaneously laugh, for example, at a comedian who calls out people in their ridiculousness and at the same time fail to see we have our own area of areas of absurdities, right? Well, that's what some did when they heard Romans 1, 18 through 32. And the problem is they forget that they need to hear this as well. And so he sets out at the beginning to call out this so-called morally upright opponent who's passing judgment on someone else, and he has no excuse. There's something natural in us in our human proclivity to pass judgment on others' sins while paying no regard to our own life, paying no attention to our own problems. We can smell everybody else's B.O., but somehow we miss our own. We get tickled at, at kids and, and how they tattletale on one another, knowing good and well they're just as guilty, but we're not much different than them at times, and it's embarrassing. Key in on this. As you get into the text, to pass judgment here is not simply saying, well, that is wrong, 
but it's accompanying it with a particular attitude, basically saying, you are lost and I'm glad because now I feel better about myself. In other words, to pass judgment in this context is to believe that others are worthy of God's judgment while somehow you and I are not if we're doing this. And there's a place to call something wrong because God calls it wrong, but what's going on here, here is different, as I just explained. The main issue is summed up, <laughs> the main problem. You do the same things, verse 1. He's saying, you have suppressed the truth about God. You have failed to give glory to God. You have failed to thank God. You have been worthless before and stupid in your thinking. You have missed your need for Christ in your blindness. You have sinned sexually before. You have been inflamed in lust before. You have, all, uh, you have uh, been full of all kinds of sins. But the difference is, is that you don't really believe it, Paul says. You suppress that and only think about your outward pleasing traits. It turns out at the end of chapter 1, it's written to expose the idols of the religious person as much as it's written to expose the irreligious person. The CSB footnotes uh, the text here well. Oh man, every one of you. And that detail matters because it underscores that one addressed here is a mere man. Oh, Oh little human being. Oh little guy. And not God who is the one that, who's the transcendent God. Multiple times in this, there's a contrast between human judgment and God's judgment. There's a contrast. Man's judgment is skewed. If you don't know that, just pay attention to man long enough. You'll see that man's judgment is skewed. Listen to the news sometime. Look at the court of public opinion sometime. Look at the ways you have been... um, You've been relieved in, uh, that your judgment of a situation did not come out to someone you know and love because you were wrong about it. Here are the verdicts of the self-righteous. You know, what happens? They ricochet back and condemn them as well. And so the religious pride is a type of idolatry, blinding them to their own wickedness. John MacArthur notes something here I thought was really helpful. He said, In their condemnation of others, they have excused and overlooked their own sins. Self-righteousness exists because of two deadly errors. Number one, minimizing God's moral standard, usually by emphasizing externals, aesthetics. And number two, underestimating the depths of one's own sinfulness, end quote. Are you minimizing God's standards? And are you underestimating the depth of your own sin? And so they need to know, verse 1, they condemn themselves because they're guilty. And so the present verse asks, have you ever, you know, have you ever criticized anyone for anything? Then you are without excuse before your criticism arises from the fact that you have a conscience which now recognizes sin in another person because it's aware of the existence of sin in yourself. And you've never lived up to the light of your own conscience, whatever it may be. Anyone who's ever criticized anything and anybody else has thereby written, as one author put it, his own condemnation because you only highlight your knowledge of sin. You have a knowledge of sin. Donald Gray Barnhouse put it well, no individual has ever criticized another for lying without having some time or other been guilty, guilty of shading the truth, end quote. In verse 2, look at verse 2, it reveals that the 
that they know God judges things as they really are in accord with reality, based on the truth. And his judgment of the wicked, of wicked practices is sound, it's reliable in accordance with his character. He's scrupulously fair in judgment. That should terrify us. He will, use, he will even use our own standards, the judgments we made with our own mouths, as the standards by which we are judged. <clears throat> and still they blindly compare themselves favorably with Gentile sinners and deceive themselves. But God's going to judge them not by that standard, but by his own. Does anyone remember the old costumes, the Halloween costumes of the 70s and 80s? Where the, the mask that supported them were held up by a flimsy ru uh, a rubber band and a little staple. Anybody remember those? Yeah, I had the creature of the Black Lagoon in elementary school. Um, and... Um, I'm not promoting Halloween. Everybody relax. I'm just saying that was a cultural phenomenon. They were bought by millions of people in America. And uh, just remember how, like, you would go out. I think Seinfeld even had a bit about this 30 years ago where you'd put on the costume. It was a slip-on, and then you'd have the mask with that little tiny. But, but throughout the night, at some point, that rubber band's going to crack and bust. It, you're, just, you're just walking around like an idiot with a mask on at that point. Um, and it would be kind of sad because it was so cheaply made. Well, those masks back then are more secure than our fake self-righteousness before God Almighty. Those hold up better. Here's some, let me do some application. Stop comparing yourself to others. Stop comparing yourself to others. We, can find, we find all kinds of excuses for our sin when we're tired or provoked or was a lesser evil while being fast to notice and condemn it in others without ever considering what burdens they may be carrying. I am terribly guilty. John Stott put it like this, we work ourselves up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people, while the very same behavior seems not so nearly so serious when it's ours rather than theirs. We even gain a vicarious satisfaction from condemning in others their very faults we excuse in ourselves, end quote. Next application. Ask yourself what you are doing to combat a self-righteous, critical spirit that forgets the depths of your own sin. What are you doing to combat this? You realize you don't just wake up and go, I am so over self-righteousness forevermore right now. You know, that... That happens in glory when we'll be free from the, from the presence of sin. But last I checked, yeah, the new Jerusalem is not here. We're still sin, uh, sinners in the sense of like we still disobey the Lord as God's people. We are saints, but at times we fall short. We still disobey. And so you need to ask yourself, what are we doing to combat self-righteous critical spirit? We have to humbly admit that hypocrisy lives everywhere. It's in us. It's around us. It's in our coffee, folks. The only place hypocrisy doesn't live is in the heart of God and his fully glorified children. So you better start thinking through a strategy. How can I not get into this? Next application. Examine your own tendencies towards unforgiveness and gossip. Towards unforgiveness and gossip. Now, let me be clear, it takes two people to reconcile. I'm not necessarily talking about reconciliation. I I'm talking about humility before God. That's what I'm talking about. 
Some relationships this side of glory will never know trust again. But forgiveness is in our hearts is a must. It's something we have to get up and do daily. And a refusal to daily forgive someone who has sinned against you is a manifestation in our hearts of hypocrisy. It's a sign that either we are not walking in God's forgiving grace or that we take his grace for granted. This is something we have to deal with daily. Some of you, freshly today, you're dealing with a wound and you're going to have to go back to the Lord again and give it to him. An unchecked word about others also behind their backs is not a good sign in our hearts. Too often we privately feel better about ourselves when we remark on Miss Perfect over there or Mr. Perfect over there isn't so perfect. Well, let's be aware of that little competitor inside of us and be ashamed of it. We would want to be, uh, we, we want to be judged by the standards we judge others. Do we demand grace but never give mercy? Third application. Start looking more at Jesus. Start looking more at Jesus. Remember, Jesus prohibits one kind of judging, the kind we're talking about here, mode of judging, condemnation in that sense, but approved of a different kind of discernment and judgment. And condemning others for their faults is a failure to exercise forgiveness. And only a gentle and humble correction that first recognizes one's own greater faults, the log in our own eye, can help. There's also a necessary discerning judgment that does not condemn but distinguishes unbelief from belief. So as we look at Jesus, we're reminded of the truth that we are to agree with God, but we are not to pretend we are God. He is God. He is God in the flesh. And we should thank God that there was this one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who was never a hypocrite, but was perfect in his outward and his inward life. And in his perfect righteousness, he went to the cross to pay for the sins of hypocrites like you and me. Any sinner who would turn from their sin and trust, stop trusting in their own absurdity idea of their righteousness and put their trust in Jesus alone. We need Jesus because God judges according to works. So we've dealt with hypocrisy. Let's do number two, stupidity. Stupidity. And now we're going to focus, focus now on verses three through five. Just to be clear, I looked it up. To be stupid means to be dulled, to be marked by or resulting from unreasoned thinking or acting. I hate looking back in my life and, and seeing the deep levels of stupidity I have exercised, and there have been too many to recount today. Don't ask me about them. Remember the times when you didn't listen well? Remember the times you were so careless? Young people, if I could just pause here and talk to you. There's a lot of movement going on in the building. If I could just calm down. Young people, give yourself to God now so you have less regrets. Too many adults and even senior citizens Senior citizens lack the self-awareness to see where they were and are still being stupid. Young people, hear the word of God. You don't have to live right. You can set your life right now to be as least stupid as you can be by the grace of God. Amen? It's better to listen and learn than live and learn a lot most of the time. Though there are some things you just have to walk through. But where does stupidity show up? Look at the text. Verses 3 through 5. It shows itself in how they think, how they despise, and how they store up are the main 
emphases here in the passage. Verse 3, they think they will escape judgment even though they're guilty. That's a, as I mentioned earlier in the service, that's a big mistake. They currently despise God's kindness to them in restraining his final judgment from them. And they lay not up treasures in heaven, but instead store up more wrath against themselves on the final day as they live in self-righteous sinfulness. Those are three things. They think they will escape judgment, they despise God's kindness, and they lay up treasures but wrath. So they are being willfully ignorant, also known as stupid. And they look, and you can look for proof right there in the passage. Look at verse 5, hardened. It means that they, the self-righteous rebellion shows up as lifelessness towards God. You're dead to God. You're dead. He's distant. This person, you think you're alive to God? That heart, that heart is not beating. It is hardened. Dead to the Lord, and so a heart of stone rather than one of flesh. It's another way of saying you're dead in your sins and transgressions. You're not alive in the Spirit of God. You're not alive in Christ. And today we're taught to do what feels good, by the way. And feeling good is, uh, if that is your measure, and, and, and then you begin to think your feelings are not without flaw. So people who live and are living good and they're feeling good in their flesh and they're doing all those things, they think they are alive. God's word says you are dead. You just don't know it. Our feelings are not somehow that part of our being that's just innocent and flawless and pure. No, they're perverse and godless. Your feelings may actually testify that you're dead to God if you pay careful attention. And so misconstruing God's present kindness as approval, that you're feeling good, that you feel good in your sin and living against God, is not a sign of approval. It's not an assurance of, of, that God's going to not deal with you in death. God is forbearing and patient only to provide time for repentance. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So God's judgment means you should not presume on his kindness, but turn to him today while you have it. We have things backwards. We think because we feel good in something, God must be happy with us. And the word says you've got it completely backwards. Doesn't mean that he calls us to unhappiness and misery. No, he calls us to joy in himself, not separate from him in our sin. The world believes that in the enjoyment of their sin is a sign of approval. Friends, that is a sign you're in trouble. The fact that you are not dead is a sign you need to look to God before it's too late. If you're still breathing, that's a sign that God's being patient with you. So God's kindnesses are seen in your next breath. And it's meant to lead a person to a life-changing repentance. And many presume on God's kindness, never repenting, yet believing God will simply say on the last day, oh, just come on in, we'll let you in anyway. And Paul's saying, stop, no. There's no assurance based on some emotional experience in the past or some religious ritual. If you're looking to a baptism or to a church membership, you're looking to the wrong thing. When you have not been made a new creation in Jesus... And you should, let me be clear, you shouldn't look to assurance for yourself whatsoever. 
You shouldn't look for assurance in your good deeds. They should be encouraging you on a different level, but your first level of assurance starts by looking to the cross of Calvary where Jesus died and shed his blood for sinners like you and me. Look to that empty tomb where he was raised from the dead. Get your eyes not on your works, but on Jesus. Paul does not want us to presume on God's grace because he wants, us to, he wants to see people saved. And so in God's kindness, he makes us aware of our sin and our responsibility to turn to him and to put faith in him. Faith in who? In Jesus, his only son. Do not presume on God's kindness, but receive his transforming grace through genuine repentance, turning from yourself to Christ. The late Charles Stanley said this about the kindness and goodness of God. Salvation is a work of God from start to finish. Even our repentance demonstrates the spirit of God at work in our hearts. We repent, of, we repent notice this, because of the goodness of God, not because of the goodness of our hearts, end quote. Dr. Stanley was right. I wish his son would preach more like that, actually. That's a different sermon. It's a presumptuous here, contempt for his kindness. Look at the text. To ignore God and not see your need of his gift in Jesus. Verse 4. To despise. Look at verse 4. That's to have an attitude which scoffs at the idea of God. To despise not only necessarily means to hate. It can mean to think nothing of. Think about people you've known in life, you've worked with. They've been around you for years, and yet they can come in and act like they've never known you. They, they can just, it's like you never existed. That's called despise. They didn't think anything of you. Well, this is what's going on here. They didn't think anything of it. They think nothing of the next breath that God gives them. And so a self-righteous person will acknowledge the existence of God but sees no need for God. They are doing well in themselves. They are their own savior. They deserve glory. It's the attitude of the person who welcomes God's wrath on others but thinks they themselves are entirely exempt. And friends, this isn't just people in a church or in a religious situation. Just go into your neighborhoods, meet your neighbors, and you will find this kind of conversation. Those people are terrible. They are wicked. I never hear some of my lost neighbors talk about, gosh, if it weren't for God's grace, where would I be today? They see no need for repentance, have no realization that God is kindly holding back his judgment today. Friends, you are breathing God's air every day. It's not yours. Everything's his. Friends, you ever read about read the obituaries that, locally? From time to time, I do. And I begin to think of those who thought nothing, who despised God's daily kindnesses to them. And instead, they thought they deserved more from God despite their own rebellion. And so Romans 1 and 2 are setting before us two types of people. Romans 1 and 2 have two, two types of sinners for us to think about. And sometimes we fall into both categories. It's the same people that Jesus talked about in the parable of the two sons, the prodigal son. Uh, many of you know that as its title. Romans chapter 1 is the son who runs off into the world and ends up in the pig pen. Romans 2 is the elder brother who's proud of himself. Both of them are in trouble. Both of them need to realize, I need to run back to my father right now. And the good news is he will receive you if you come to him. 
If you're here today and you're under conviction of sin, let me assure you, if you run to the Father for mercy, both arms are going to be ready. He is ready to receive any sinner who would turn and trust in him. Go back to verse 5 again. Two particular terms, hardened and unrepentant heart, should jump off to us here. Uh, these are used also in the Greek Old Testament, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and they're used of those guilty of idolatry. So the Jewish audience who received these words would have that should have triggered something for them. Those religious, the, the religious obedience looks godly. In fact, it is a form of idolatry, and it's an idol of self. They worship their goodness. And they think their goodness will save them. But Paul says, no, you are literally treasuring up. You're building up a treasury of wrath. That's what's happening. You're only accumulating more wrath unto yourself on the last day. So here's some application for us. Here we go. This should be right. Should, since the, the point number two is stupidities. Number First application, don't be stupid. <laughs> Forgetting to deal with what's in your heart. Don't be stupid for getting to deal what's inside of your own heart. No one lives up to their own standards. Remember that. And the particular sins that he lays down in chapter 1, most of them, a good majority of them, focused on attitudes. For most of us, it's not too hard to get to the end of the day and say, well, I haven't murdered anyone. It's rarer for us to honestly be able to say, I have not been angry with anyone. I've not treated anyone as though they were not worthy of my love today. No, we all fall short. And we even put God in a box and we think of him and his intentions in a monolithic way. Thinking of him only in terms of his love and acceptance, diminishing our sensitivity to sin and its consequences uh, to our relationship with him. And the other flip of that is to think solely of him, of judging sinners, ignoring his desire to see us repent. And it boils down to how we respond to our sin. God is holy and just, but he's also merciful and forgiving. You need to know both those truths. And so Paul puts down the pathways here. Those who acknowledge their sin and repent experience God's kindness. And I'm going to come to that in just a minute. But those who reject him encounter wrath next application be thankful for god's patience amen i just want to see if you're listening raise your hand if you've known god's patience okay just making sure there's heartbeat there's a real there's a you know pulse out there okay making sure we're all we're all understanding that okay god doesn't write people off just because they've sinned in fact in his economy, his kindness, forbearance, and patience are intended to bring about a change of heart in the sinner. So as you're living your life today, are you thinking about your life in terms of, is God being patient with me to affirm me in what I'm doing? Or is he, as his word says right here, maybe this whole time I have missed out on day after day to turn from my sin by grace, self-trust, and put my trust in Jesus alone. Third application would be, praise God, there was one whose merits earned our salvation while our sin stored up wrath for the final day. Oh, God, God have mercy. Aren't you thankful for Jesus that instead of us having to deal with this overwhelming sin debt that we've been accumulating all of our lives, that Jesus bore that wrath on the cross in our place? 
that God, he propitiated the wrath of God. He expiated the wrath of God from us, those who believe in him. Only Jesus can satisfy God's just demand. For us, it would be eternal, eternal separation from God, eternal conscious torment away, dealing with God's wrath. But the Son of God went to Calvary to propitiate God's wrath from us, to absorb it. What a Savior. We need Jesus because God judges according to works. Number three, impartiality. We've thought about hypocrisy. We've thought about stupidity. Number three, the next argument is impartiality. Have you ever seen a ball field of any kind filled with parents who think they are impartial? <laughs> right? At some point, that partiality shows up. Many a coach has started a son or a daughter over a kid who was probably better for a particular position. I'm not trying to give anybody PTSD right now, okay? But just one, this is a separate debate. I'll go into it just briefly. There have been coaches that have ruined careers for, for, for guys or, and women who we, could have been great. Lloyd Carr, Jake Thomas, almost ruined Tom Brady's career. Okay, that's a separate discussion. All right. Back, let's, that's a mental break. Let's get back to it. Partiality shows up, and many a coach has started and, 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 and done this poorly. It happens. We lack partiality. We lack partiality. None of us is perfectly impartial. There's only one who is, God. And part of the job, of, by the way, of a good lawyer is to find a way to make their client partially favored to the jury. I saw it happen when I served on a jury. Their client was objectively guilty. It was bad. But the lawyer tried to take the logic out of it, and she tried to make it other around other issues. What was going on behind this, maybe with their life or maybe their ethnicity. She tried to do everything but except deal with the fact that the crimes had been committed. In the deliberation room, we, needed, we had to keep some members focused on the actual codes that had been violated. That's why we were there. And Paul, though, now wants us to think about God's impartiality. There will be no issues like that in, 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 among God, in, in, in God's mind, in the Godhead. There is only impartiality. And so he says here in verses 6 through 11 that God judges by a perfect standard of his own character and law, and each person has an account to give. If you want to judge others, you know, reject your need for God's grace in Christ Here's the thing. Be careful and be warned. God will deal with you perfectly, impartially, according to your works. And they don't, here's the, here's the sad thing, they don't match up. They don't match up to Jesus. There will be no need for a deliberation. The facts will stand. And so Paul uses a, I put there for you in your bulletin, just to help you see that chiastic structure. He, put, he uses an inverted parallelism, a, a, a chiastic structure, starting and ending with the same thing. In verse 6, and then always capping it off in verse 11. God judges everyone the same. God shows no favoritism. So you can see the structure there before you. And so he will reveal his righteous judgment on the day of wrath. So what does Paul mean when he asserts that people who do good will gain eternal life in this section? We've got to remember, Paul elsewhere makes it clear that people can achieve eternal life 
only through faith in Christ. He cannot mean that people can actually be saved by simply do good works, Pastor. You're right. That's not what he's saying. Look at, verse, look at the descriptions. Just think with me. Look with me at the text. Look at the descriptions here. Eternal life to those who by persistence and doing good seek glory and honor and immortality. But wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. Which way describes us outside of Christ? Verse 8. Paul is contrasting, is Paul contrasting a believer against an unbeliever or a perfect person against a sinner? Some interpreters think this section he sets apart the believer against the unbeliever. And these scholars, including some of my favorites, think Paul is describing Christians, again, whose good works demonstrate the reality of the new life. And I can see how they arrive at that point by the language of perseverance and how the behavior of the good is a description of believers who have been saved unto good works. I just want to give a nod. I intellectually understand how they read that. But Paul says that it's the doing of good itself that brings life. And so Paul was not teaching salvation by works because he's about to get into chapter 3. If you know chapter 3, he's going to really make sure you understand what he's saying. That no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. And so he adopts for the moment the perspective of the self-righteous person right here. What needs to be added is that no one could ever keep the law so perfectly as to be considered righteous before God. Romans 3, we can just go to the next chapter. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. And so Jim Boyce asked the right question here. Has anyone ever chosen this path that he's laying out in verse 7 by his or her own will and then walked along it by his own strength? Does anyone himself or herself actually do good and persist in it apart from the gospel? The answer is no. No one does this. It's better to view these statements as assertions. If someone, this hypothetical person, perfectly obeys, persists in doing good, no, no shortcomings, no failings, they would gain eternal life. You show me someone who's lived perfect in righteousness, they'll get eternal life. Paul makes it clear no one since the fall of Adam can, in fact, do this good persistently. And so Paul's purpose at this point is not to show how people can be saved, but he's setting forth the standards of God's evaluation apart from the gospel. If you don't have Christ, you'll be judged according to your works, and you'll be weighed, and you'll be measured, and you'll be found short. Wanting. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter your, your, your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your social status. It doesn't matter what job you had. It doesn't matter. You're either in Christ or you're not. And so Paul's combating the false hopes of the Jews who, though trusting in the law, whereby the principles of the law exposed them to condemnation. So looking at chapter 1 to chapter 2, God's wrath is revealed three categories. Those who practice the vices listed there in the preceding section, who approve of what they do, chapter 1. And those who disapprove in the sense that they sit in judgment now upon those two classes. Wrath is due to both. And so Paul believed if anyone were found to have reached this high standard, God would declare them righteous. But no one has, and that's coming up in chapter 3. So here's what you have to get grasp as we flow through here. He did not believe anyone fulfilled this. 
If there is not even one righteous person, as chapter 3 will say, it's clear that the doors of the law who, uh, uh, of the law who will be um, justified, those who would be justified in such a way, it's an empty set. It's just a, he's trying to help you highlight. It's not, no one's going to do that. So we need to understand that everyone, all of that teaching is to say that everybody's in the same predicament. God will not show favoritism. Unbelievers here this morning, God's word is trying to kindly warn you. As you grasp for your good works in your heart before God, you are grasping at straws. You are in serious danger. And to those who are self-righteous here today, you may get what you want and end up being judged by your works and it will go horribly as you stand exposed before the God of the universe who is impartial. So here's the application. We should be thankful that Jesus supplied the works of righteousness we did not have so we could be saved by grace through faith in him. It's not grace if it's grace plus works. I'm sorry, but the Vatican and the magisterium, Rome, is wrong. Is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not good news. It's not Jesus paid it some. He paid it all. God's wrath was given to Jesus so that any sinner who would ever repent and believe could experience the great Passover because the Lamb's blood has been applied to your account. Number four today. We need Jesus because God judges according to works. Number four, objectivity. Objectivity. Paul doesn't lighten up. He, he burrows in harder. If he's driving the car, he's, he's putting the hammer down. He's putting that foot on the, on the gas. Note verse 16, the objectivity of God. The day when God judges what people... I, have no idea, you, I don't know what was in your heart today, what you think he would judge, but look what the text says he will do. What people have kept secret according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. And included in the message of the gospel is not only that Jesus died and was raised on the third day, but that he ascended to the throne on high. And as the apostles, you watch the apostles in the book of Acts, they say, and he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. For verse 13, look at verse 13, lays out the clear principles. The do, this is, don't be confused by this section. Verse 13 really kind of hits at it right here. The doers of the law will be justified. Again, there is none who've done it. So look at here, a Jew listening to Paul's argument would have offered a critical objection. Oh, Paul, does not the fact that the Jews are God's chosen people and have been given his law as a sign of his covenant put them in a very different position before God's judgment from the Gentiles? Well, yeah, it does. This is, it makes them more responsible first to the Jew. And so Paul anticipates this objection. He says here, both Jews and Gentiles will be condemned by the law because it is only those who obey the law who will be righteous in God's sight. And so he goes in. It's not possessing the law, but keeping it that determines our righteousness. So for the Jew who believes possession conveys some special status within the community, this would be shocking to them. 
And Paul says that they both, the Jew and Gentile, face the same dilemma. Sin creates a barrier to having a righteous standing before God. And that's what verse 16 is revealing. People are condemned not for what they don't know, but for what they do know. And so go back and review chapter 1. And those who know God's written word and his law will be judged by them. In verse 14, those who have never seen a Bible still know right from wrong as image bearers. And they will be judged because they did not even keep those standards that their own consciences dictated. Whenever verse 14, Gentiles by natural instinct did what the law required, they demonstrated the existence of a guiding principle within themselves. People without the law of Moses still know it's wrong to commit adultery to steal and to kill, etc. And so our modern day sense of fair play and the rights of the individual often balks at God's judgment, but keep in mind that people violate the very standards they create for themselves. Even ancient thinkers, if I can just teach for a moment, often spoke of a universal natural law that provided people with innate knowledge of evidence of what is right. That's what Paul's talking about here about the Gentiles. The point was to emphasize they were responsible even for their ignorance of God. And so this points to the need for the, what's, what's this point to, Pastor Garrett? A need for the rewriting of the law on a new heart, one that's not hardened, one that does not suppress the truth and righteousness, and unrighteousness, but one that wants to live in that. He's talking about those who would be born again. That's what that's pointing a hope towards. And so in this first chapter, there was a statement that all men were without excuse because the truth of God had been written by him across the forces of nature, the, excuse me, the face of nature. But now in the opening verse of second chapter, we find that man is without excuse because the truth of God has been written by him across the conscience of humanity. So there are two massive billboards that humanity stands responsible for. Creation testifies to a great designer. It's not... It's not it's not small. It's, you cannot miss it. And the other one is your conscience. You have a sense of right and wrong. And so Paul destroys the props that enable some Jews to imagine they could be reckoned righteous on any basis other than offered in the gospel. That's what he talks about here. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ. Here's the application. Grasp your own desperate condition. Grasp your own desperate condition. It's not enough to be raised in church. It's not enough that you don't cuss like the world does. It's not enough that you served 20 years in nursery or led some Bible study. It's not enough that you provided food for your family. It's not enough before God that you helped your kids get on the school bus and served as a class mom. It's not enough that you didn't actually murder someone. It's not enough your attendance was better than someone else. These things don't justify anyone before God. For heaven's sake, can we get this through our heads, our self-justifying hearts? They will do nothing for us before God Almighty. Your righteousness, the Bible says, is as filthy rags and so is mine. Can we stop with the boasting? Can we stop thinking about how good we are when we know good and well outside of the grace of God we're a bunch of idolaters who grumble and complain and sin in all kinds of ways that we're, we should be ashamed of? Oh my goodness, the fact that we would ever come into a church gathering with the gospels preached and be proud is absurd. This place, the church, is a hospital 
Jesus came for the sick, not for those who think they need no healing. He came for those who know they need help. Friends, when was the last time you said, God, this is all I've ever been as a wicked sinner. That's all I've ever been. But I believe Jesus died and came to help people like me. And he came to save people like you. Our sin may not always be outwardly manifested, but it's always seen by God in our hearts where it seethes. That bitterness, that superiority, that fault-finding tendency, that lust, that greed, that grumbling, that lack of love is seen by God Almighty. And today, friends, we should go home and stand before the mirror of God's word and look, take a good look at the sin in, the, in, 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 its, in our face and say to you, in the stories of God's word and say, God, if it weren't for your grace, I would be deep in that sin too. Parents, maybe we need to go home today and apologize for the attitudes of superiority we foster in our homes over others because we don't sin the way they do. But instead, freely admit to our children that not only have we got real sin in our own hearts, but that we have a little Pharisee inside of us too. We got double whammy. We got ugliness, and we, then we have this stupid Pharisee in us that thinks that we're so good. Pastor, are you saying we're messed up? Yes! Oh my goodness, we're far more sinful than we realize. Second application, look out for overcorrections. We tend to overcorrect, don't we? There was a tendency in previous generations to judge the outside more than the inside. And so maybe people would come into the church and not look a certain way. And there was a tendency maybe in that culture to look down on the outward appearances and aesthetics. And today, though, there's the, other, uh, the overcorrection where there's a temptation to say nothing about the outward. And we need to look at Romans 1 and Romans 2 and see how the word speaks to both of those problems. Not so we get ourselves together better than others, but that we submit both our inside and our outside to King Jesus and to his mercy. And you may be tempted today to go home and fix yourself. Let me save you some time. You can't. You've never been able to do it. You still have to live with somebody. You know who it is? You. You need to start looking in faith to Jesus. The worst thing I could tell you today is go home and fix yourself. Or get your eyes on yourself. No. Go look to Jesus. And he will give you the power to change by the Holy Spirit. Only Jesus can change the heart, which will then change our behavior over time. That's the message. Jesus died, not so we would live enslaved to sin. He died to set us free. Satan does not want you to think on that. Jesus died to pay for your sin debt, but also to set you free. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad for the freedom that we have in Jesus? Well, let me conclude, friends. What's the tape going to say? What's the instant replay going to show? Here's what the tape needs to say. On this particular day, insert your name, they humbled themselves before God, cast off any idea of goodness before God, and they cried out to Jesus for mercy. And Jesus met them and forgave them. Amen. Let's pray.
Oh, how we need the Lord Jesus. Because our good works, Lord, just don't meet up. Lord, not only are we rebels, but we're self-righteous rebels. We're, we're so broken. And we thank you, Lord, for that your blood, Calvary, Lord Jesus, was shed for us, for any who repent and believe. And that you raised your son from the dead, giving us hope and resurrection power. Help us to walk, Lord, in the faith of the gospel. Thank you for your love. Thank you for these truths that expose us and make Jesus all the more sweeter to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.